Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. And I'm Terrell. And as always, we're Dangerously Likely to talk about Democrats. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. So on election night last week, uh, something kind of peculiar happened, uh, specifically in Buffalo, New York. Yes, this is not a story about what happened in Virginia or New Jersey or anywhere else. This is yeah. about Buffalo, New York. It'll come up soon, I'm sure. The one by Niagara Falls. Um, <laughs> in case you were confused. The city's incumbent Democrat, uh, Democratic mayor, who lost in the Democratic primaries to a Democratic socialist, won a write-in campaign to keep his mayoral position against the same Democratic socialist who beat him in the primary. Now, big-name left-wing Dems are calling for the party to strip him of his position on the DNC or the Democratic National Committee. Absolutely not. uh, Claiming that, quote, when you pull a stunt like this, somebody wins a primary, a working-class woman, and you get every single rich donor in both parties to fund a write-in campaign, it's a disgrace. That quote was specifically from Larry Cohen, the chair of the Bernie Sanders aligned group, Our Revolution. Trump, what do you make of this? I mean, was the mayor wrong to pull off a stunt? It wasn't a stunt. Or are progressives getting a little bit worried that the electorate uh, doesn't like that? Yeah. What? What? Are we are we saying (laughs) that today? Are we finally admitting the fact that, yeah, you might be able to win a Democratic primary, but can you win the general? One interesting thing about that, however... Um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure because Buffalo is such a blue area, the, um, the progressive was essentially running uncontested until the former mayor decided to run as a writing candidate and also printed out stamps with his name and distributed them. This is a story I've heard on TikTok. This is actually really fascinating. Um, I'm glad you brought it up because it reminded me. Um, And distributed them, which a lot of people challenged and said it should have been considered illegal or a violation. But under their laws, it was not. And the reason he did did that is because he feared if the um, votes came close, his opponent would challenge the spelling of his name in the write-in space and somehow manage to win the election. So this whole election was so dramatic. Fascinating. But no, they're not wrong. You know where he got the strategy from? Bernie Sanders, who's done the exact same thing. Thank you. Next. So Moving on. If the complete opposite happens. Like if- Would I be upset? Yes. Would I be would I say that he was wrong for doing it? No. Or she, I should say, in the situation. But do you think that like it's okay for for candidates of the same party when they lose a primary to not accept the loss? If they fear that the candidate who won will do more damage, yes. Our system is, here's a great talking point for the progressives here. Um, The ones who scream out about elitism. Our system is not inherently supposed to be built on this uh, space of privilege and elitism. It it should be open for anyone who feels they have a different view for running a municipality, a state, a government, any insert anything here. They should be eligible and willing to vote or willing to run. And if, In this situation, the mayor genuinely felt that their plans and ideology was better aligned with the progress for Buffalo, which clearly the voters did as well. (laughs) Um, I don't understand how you can argue against that. That was the will of the people. Isn't that what every Bernie Sanders crony says? We're fighting for the will of the people. 
did it burn you 100 percent? does that suck i'm sorry for you but sucks <laughs> it, it sounded like the the moderate democrat and incumbent mayor who did win this uh based off the uh the quote from the chair of the bernie sanders group our revolution um it seemed like what this mayor did was kind of cry foul in terms of uh-oh there's a progressive that might be the mayor of our city um help me rich people from both parties okay so he just knew how to play well to me that just means he knew how to play the advantage. he knew how to play the game but also again he had a different idea for how buffalo needed to be ran like we can't be having this conversation of well, the primary chose the more progressive candidate, which means that candidate just should have inherited this space. Again, if you are truly a Bernie Sanders progressive, you care about the will of the people. You also care about the fact that not every person is a progressive Democrat. I am one of them. Um, you also have people who live in that specific city who don't even identify as Democrats, who identify as more conservative leaning so you're telling me that just because you won a primary, which means you know you should have gotten it, those people now need to be disadvantaged? And I'm sure I'm going to get crap for that and might get canceled for well, saying well, it. But that's an important argument here that can't be ignored. I don't think I disagree with you. I think that like... Oh, I'm not worried about you canceling me. I'm worried about other people. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. Worried is a stretch I mean, you'll just well. be here back next Tuesday, you know, and yeah. just continue to... I'm never leaving. ...do podcast stuff. But um, I think that like, I... Like I don't disagree with you on the on the uh, uh, in regards to specifically uh, moderate versus progressive mm -hmm. and the ideals or whatnot and voters obviously connected with um, the guy who was moderate and yeah. not progressive even though even though he lost in the primary but um, I don't disagree with you on that but I do kind of want to question like is it super fair to have and I know that this has kind of always been that way, but how how fair are elections with the kind of advantage the incumbent mayor had? That is one argument I was willing to give, but this is essentially a great example of what would happen if we weren't a two-party system. Yeah, that's true too. And again- and Incumbents always have an advantage. Yeah. And there's not really much you can do about it because we have an elected system. And I feel like that argument loses some steam because if he really had an advantage, he would have won the primary. So you have this piece in there, well, too, of, OK, maybe. yes, you have the incumbent who clearly had a referendum against him from within his party that said we wanted someone a little bit more progressive. Completely understandable. Whatever. Um, but the overall city of Buffalo did not inherently agree with that. And then obviously you have to get into the numbers about turnout. How many people actually vote in the primary? What were the demographics? This and that? Like this is a very get into the weeds kind of argument. But I can't stress this enough. He got the idea from Bernie Sanders. This is a thing that he has talked about. When he lost the primary to Hillary Clinton, he expressed all of his options to potentially still run for president against the person who he's supposed to claim as a part of his party. Because he's an independent, he never belonged in the party. And that is the issue here of, I'm all for the Democrats calling themselves a big tent. However, Bernie Sanders was never a Democrat. He was an independent who recognized that he could not win on his power alone. He needed the party to mold and shape and move him forward. So the day right before he um, announced his candidacy, he changed his party affiliation. 
And those things are very important in understanding of how we get here because the people who bought into his message who are who agree with where he's going, while they call themselves Democrats because they don't know any other option, they really truly are independents and should be a separate party. But because we are forced to makeshift yeah. all of these things in the two-party system, we end up in this very situation where the former mayor made the smarter play. Simple as that, right? <laughs> Simple. Let's go around the world in under a minute. President Sebastian Panera of Chile was impeached on Tuesday following the revelations of offshore finance dealings um, that were uncovered through the publication of the Pandora Papers. Um, a Senate trial will require 29 votes, and right now the opposition party has 24, if I remember correctly, um, to formally remove him, but that'll be a story that I'm following. That's a small margin. Right? Uh, we say that, but also how close was it to mm -hmm. him? That feels like a big margin compared to what we fucking got in our Senate, am I right? Eh, not by much. Uh, <laughs> um, you're also eating up my minute. Um some 3 million people are in need of life-saving humanitarian assistance from the military seizure of power in Myanmar um, back in Jan or February, according to the UN. All of this is coming from the Associated Press, by the way. And lastly, the Iraqi Prime Minister Mustafa al-Kazmi um, evaded a assassination attempt on Sunday after explosive drones were targeting his residence. And that's wow. from CNN. Uh, that's really freaking freaky and scary. Yeah. Wow. And we'll be right back. Well, Caleb, um, like we imagined, Virginia happened and every outlet is going to bet about how poorly the Democrats did. Um, specifically how this is a huge uh, reformation for what's going to happen in the midterms and just a lot. Um, but it is very important to note that in Virginia, this was a massive ramification on the party. Not only did um, Youngkin win the governorship, but he also took, or, but the Republicans also took Lieutenant Governor, Attorney General. There's a potential that it's going to be a 50-50 split in the House of Delegates. I think last time I saw it was uh, 52 to 48. Mind you, Democrats had a 38 to 20 something advantage there. However, that math works in my head. Um, it was a bad night for Democrats in Virginia and they're holding on to the Senate. But I guess let's start with what are some of your takeaways from the night? Well, I also want to just note that like New Jersey's governor race is one that nobody was paying attention to and actually swung further right um, than Virginia did. And the Democratic governor only won by like maybe a percentage point. Um, just an overall not a great night <laughs> for Democrats. And like, yeah, like the media is not wrong for uh, 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 saying that. I don't know. My takeaway is that like, maybe I'm just too desensitized and exhausted, but mm, fair. these results didn't really shock me. And like, this is one of those moments where I think a lot of people, whew, I don't know, three months ago or whenever the primary was for this, um, like Dave Wasserman, who's a pollster, came out and said, this might be actually, actually a really close election. And everybody was like, what? Like, polls have been so off. 
like we can't even trust like these guys right and this is kind of one of those moments where like they were actually kind of right <laughs> i mean it predicted the closeness of the race by far um i i don't know i i, I just say i'm not super surprised uh polls aren't going away yet and they're never going away they're never no they're not and we also need to like let that narrative go i i don't think that there's a narrative or i don't think that the narrative that like democrats are absolutely fucked because of this um in a year from now in the actual midterms uh like obviously a lot of this gives a lot of the media and whatnot some juice Mm -hmm. for that and i can't necessarily blame them this was a pretty terrible night and if it looked like this in a year ouch um, but I, we saw that Virginia was so solidly blue plus 10 or something like that for Biden last year, mm-hmm. like a one year previous that we're going to be talking about. I feel like something completely different a year from now. I don't uh, disagree with that point. I, I mean, disagree with other points you've made, but that one I don't disagree <laughs> with. So, well, I mean, like, I guess there can be a narrative there and Democrats, obviously, hopefully it's a little bit of a wake up call, but I, I don't know this is a weird time where so many things happen in a year that like the entire electorate can change. And that's kind of what happened in Virginia. Um, There was more votes for McAuliffe, 200,000 more than any off year election for a governor. And he still lost. Yeah. But in a presidential election year, he would have won probably. But I also think, and this is, this is my disagreement here is it's Virginia. Virginia voters like when you dive into the numbers of this uh, specific election it's important to understand what the demographics look like where the votes were coming from what the issues were that they were concerned about but even moreover to understand that when you look at the history of Virginia it has very much become a reliably blue state even though it's still sometimes considered a toss-up it's more than likely going to go Democratic during a presidential election. Mm-hmm. And in the last five, six, in the last six governor cycles, a Republican has won once. McAuliffe is the lowest performing governor in those cycles. The The electorate already didn't care for him when he first got elected. And the Democrats just picked him because they thought it was a safe bet mm, versus... Yeah. Finding new blood. I think that's a bigger conversation that no one wants to have. It's become the, well, Democrats I, are screwed. I, I, I actually do agree with that. I, um, McAuliffe really, so McAuliffe was already a governor. Yeah. In Virginia. 2014. And, uh, he was running to take over for Northam and it felt like Democrats were just trying to play it safe. Mm-hmm. And I don't know people, it, it if people wanted more change and Virginia's done a lot under Northam, like there's no denying it, but if people wanted like more change and whatnot, like they probably shouldn't have gone with more of the same thing for the next few years. They probably should have gone with somebody new and people have already experienced McAuliffe there and they have already probably had some kind of built up impression of, of how the state was under his time or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also kind of a weird um, trend where it, again, it just feeds into a media narrative, but it doesn't have to be that way. Where the last time that an off-year election happened after a presidential election in which Democrat won, um, Virginia's 
had, Virginia has switched to mm-hmm. Republican. And that happened right before the 2010 slaughter show, shit show of Democrats losing literally everything in government at the federal level. <laughs> in terms. Except for the presidency. Except for that. Well, he wasn't up. But exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I've heard a couple comparisons of that time to now. But then again, like a decade ago is just so much different to what's happening now. And it's a myriad of factors, right? I mean, you have McAuliffe who, you know, he wasn't that exciting and he made an education comment that a lot of people, even people who voted for Biden did not like, Mm -hmm. even Democrats did not like that. He said, what did he say? He said, um, something about parents choice with education. Parents shouldn't choose what, what, what children teach or what children learn something like that in public schools. And like, you know, and then you might have, I don't know. If you're a parent, um, and I know there's examples examples of this out there, and especially in Virginia, as we saw, if you're a parent and your kid comes home from school with an assignment and you're like, well, I don't know if I like this assignment, like, that's a very real thing that happens to parents. Like, so that comment just, it was tone deaf. And it, gave, it would have been tone deaf anywhere in the country, to be honest with you. And it gave um, Youngkin the ability to do the whole parents deserve a bill of rights when it comes to their children's education and use that as a, as a space to talk. Right. Yeah. And I, yeah, I don't know. Like when we look at this, there's just so many factors that go into it. You know, part of it wasn't necessarily McCall's fault. Part of it was probably some dislike towards Biden or whatnot. I don't think that's the whole story, but it might've been some of it, you know, Democrats can't get shit done in Congress. I Mm, have a whole conversation about that. Well, I mean, I think the, I think it's very logical to think that there was some people who went, okay, I voted for Biden because he promised me all these things. And Oh, the all I've been hearing for the last year is that Democrats suck and can't do anything. Well, why would I want to vote for a Democrat in Virginia? I don't know because you know, Democrats passed ARPA in the first month of Joe Biden being in office. People don't know it. They also don't know that child tax credit. Um, infrastructure bill just passed the first bipartisan bill to pass legislature that is dealing with social um, investment in how many decades all of that aside no 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 no. I'm not saying you're wrong I'm just saying that people don't know that I know Uh, all they've been seeing is Democrats can't get shit done that's all they've seen this whole election cycle and I think it feeds a little into it so like let's play with that I don't think it's the main factor but I think it's one of them Let's play into that. So let's say that Virginia is the barometer. It's right. It's accurate. And yeah. Democrats handedly lose in the midterm season. Like I 2010 mean, slaughterhouse. I mean, lose House and Senate lose. Um, <laughs> Which is a real possibility. Rather than the ramifications of that, I want to dive into this point that you're making about kind of the narrative that's being set right now, how okay. people are looking at things. And really dive into and talk about the why. Like, why did they lose? What were those things? Um, personally, I have a lot of pieces here and I have a lot of things I want to add. But one thing that I do want to highlight that I think is important to this narrative is understanding the, elect- the electorate. So in Virginia, um, as you mentioned, it was one of the higher turnouts for an off-year election. And when you get into the numbers, you start to see a picture of how Yunkin beat McAuliffe. Specifically, Men, which made up 47% of the total vote, voted 55 to 45 
Bryankin. Women made up 52, 52 to 47. The, um, but when you break it down by race, which was 73% of the vote um, for Caucasians, 59% voted, vote, voted for Yunkin versus 40 that voted for um, McAuliffe. The most interesting number to come out of this and the piece that a lot of commentators are highlighting is the biggest issues for people during this election were economy, coronavirus, and education. Coronavirus. All right, Cardi B. <laughs> um, when you break down the education numbers, that tended to be a very high priority for women. And when you look at the women um, demographic, specifically white women, um, you see that women with a college degree voted 55 to 44 for McCullough versus 21% of the electorate, women without college degrees, voted 68 to 31 for Yunkin. And education was the part that they cared about, which mm-hmm. means more than likely they cared about pre-K, K through 12, things of that nature. And what McCullough fucking decided to say. And this whole <laughs> argument around CRT, right? This whole belief system. Wait, what's system, CRT? This whole belief system <laughs> that critical race theory is oh, pervading through God. all areas of our child, our children's education and white kids are being made to think that they need to be castrated, essentially. That was an exaggeration, but we'll go with it. So if you understand that electorate, why did the Democrats lose handedly? What did they, what went wrong? Where are we at? What things need to shift to avoid this kind of breakdown? To clarify, are we talking about why they lost last week or why they will? What if, what if, what if they lose during the midterms? I think that. As always, Democrats have a messaging problem. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't know, just a second ago, when I was saying people don't know what Democrats have done in Congress, all they've been seeing is that Democrats can't do stuff. Um, like, and then you were like, well, look at all the stuff they've actually done. Well, I think we need to like make sure people know that. And also, um, in listening to other podcasts and stories or whatnot, McAuliffe made a lot of the race about Trump. And mm-hmm. I think there's a balance because nobody outside of us who listen to politics or whatnot really talk about Trump anymore. He's not on Twitter. He's not on social media. He's not in the news that much unless you're watching Fox. I mean, I'll pause. He just had a whole, what, America First Policy Institute. And I didn't at, fucking know about that. And I follow politics. At Mar-a-Lago Bay. <laughs> the only, so I but didn't know, point. I didn't know what was happening in Mar-a-Lago, but our governor it. was there. Our lieutenant governor was oh, there. Oh yeah, she okay, got okay. she got a hat sign, a "Make America Great Again" hat signed by Donald Trump, which is probably why she just got her endorsement. Um, <laughs> what's the one crazy representative? Not Marjorie, but the other one, Matt Gates. No, Bobert. Bobert. Yes, Bobert showed From up Colorado. with a um, "Let's Go Brandon." dress that mirrored what AOC wore to Met Gala. So like he still is relevant. I just want to put that caveat mm, out there. He he is to an extent and I think there's a And he's balance. still having those stupid campaign rallies every like 2 or 3 weeks. I think that yes, yes, I think he's relevant to some folks. I think that what Yunkin, Glenn Yunkin who ended up winning the governorship last week, mm-hmm. I think what he was able to capitalize on is 
hey, voters that voted for Biden but might be a lot more moderate or independent or maybe even moderately Republican. Why is McAuliffe talking about Trump all the time? I'm not Trump. And he towed that line really well. And he got, he got those an, voters. Even though he got an endorsement from Trump too. Yeah. Well, he didn't fucking talk about it. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I just think that like there's a balance in our messaging. And okay. if people don't know what Democrats are doing, well, we got to tell them and we got to find a simple way to do it. And another thing too, that this is just a more of a technical thing than anything. <laughs> I'm just like, so I think it's kind of stupid that Virginia has these kind of off year elections. Same. Actually. Because they have, because they have, Think about this. If you live in Virginia, you have to pay attention to an election every fucking year. That's how their off-year elections work because they have an election this year, then midterms, then they have another election the next year, presidential election, and every single one is goddamn important. Just fucking mix them with the midterms or the presidential. Holy shit. I mean, I'm sorry, whoever lives there. Damn. Um, And another thing, too, is like on a national level, like like not just McAuliffe or whatnot, but in terms of like, winning the midterms or losing them. I think if we lose the midterms, we failed at a few things. I think, I think we have failed to pass anything um, now, which the news has already come out that the house passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill and it's on Biden's desk, which is great. Um, And I'm assuming we're going to get a a reconciliation bill that we've talked about many times here on the show um, pretty soon here. (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully. Um, But like both of those things, have to somehow fail. Um, and even if they do pass, that's the bare minimum, I think. Mm-hmm. I think the issue, and you've talked about this before, is we've passed all these frameworks for things and not actual policy. So it's really hard for Joe Biden or or even Terry McAuliffe to go out there and say, look at what we're doing for you because we don't fucking know what's going to get slashed or not in the bill. Yeah. And when we pass things, we need a, we need all of the party to get into one room and decide on a great message of how we can talk about the things that we're doing. Can I nominate someone to be the new messaging person for the Democratic Party? Sure. Who? Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg has a good message. I I don't know. Like like I think some people were like turned off by him because he comes onto the scene. Oh, I still don't like him to clarify. Exactly. That's what that's what I'm actually referring to. <laughs> but his presidential campaign was one of the best messaged ones, I thought. And I think that like if the Democratic Party just sticks to message, like I know it can be difficult and we have different factions or whatnot, but Republicans always stick to message. Well, I don't know if you've seen since the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed, um, the White House had Secretary of Transportation. Pete Buttigieg Mm -hmm. um, in the press room for some press briefings. And ever since George Floyd, this country has started to have a ramification on the degree and depth to which race has negatively impacted a group of peoples, but also been a guiding policy in things that we, we do. And I'm pretty sure this was the Fox news reporter, but anyone can call me out on this. challenge Pete Buttigieg on, well, if roads and bridges are racist, what are we going to do? And Ted Cruz even posted something. If roads are racist, then we have to get rid of all roads. Trying to like get a one-off point, right? I can't believe you'd mention he who shall not be named on this podcast. (laughs) Well, it's important because I understand why 
interstates and roads and things are. We've had this conversation before, but Pete Buttigieg did such an amazing job of explaining the historical context and saying how we're doing it differently. Uh, To paraphrase him, he mentioned when an interstate is designed purposefully to split white and black neighborhoods, or when a bridge is exactly constructed to have a lower um, archway so buses can't come through, which you would expect to carry black and brown children, Mm -hmm. you can understand that those policies as they were created are racist. What we are doing with this 21st century infrastructure bill is fixing those issues and allowing an equal access for everyone. Short, sweet, to the point. And that still, to me, has been one of the best articulations of what equity looks like and also hamstringing Republicans from saying, mm-hmm. well, look, they're they're just saying that white people can't do this. It's saying, no, we want everyone to have an opportunity to have it. I, I since, since the election of 2020, the primary part for the Democrats, I have thought that Pete Buttigieg had some of the best ways of talking about these issues. Very simply... Uh, concise and succinct um, because like the average person who sees a blurb on TV will know what he's talking about and it's hard to disagree with it. Mm -hmm. And like, obviously he didn't win and you can, you can, I I kind of agree with that. You probably shouldn't (laughs) have and that's fine. I, I like, I don't think I, 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 there was a lot of factors at play there. I don't think he lost because of his messaging, but I did think his messaging was one of the best ones out of the campaigns. I, it's like if we as a Democratic Party could frame things like that at all times, we'd be in just such a better position, but we can't do it no matter how hard we try. You know, you got you got fucking Joe Manchin walking out there and going, OK, we're at one point seven five trillion dollars, but I can't agree with it every day. And that's all the media shows. And that's what a lot of Virginia voters who don't pay attention to politics as much of us sees. And if Democrats lose the midterms next year, I'm not faulting Joe Biden specific, Joe Biden, um, Joe Manchin specifically. Um, um, I I probably could in some instances, but, (laughs) (laughs) but I think that like we will, if we lose the midterms, um, because it'll, it'll be a challenge, but if we lose, It'll be because of a few factors. One, we didn't pass shit, even though we should right now. We haven't passed anything. Um, two, uh, our messaging still sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, three, our ground game um, investment. Uh, uh, we invested in the wrong people in the wrong places, um, which we actually kind of did that in the 2020 election, actually, even though we won a lot. Uh, why was someone in, I don't know, was it was it South Carolina? Where was Jamie Harrison? South Carolina. Why does he have $60 million in a person who probably could have won in a state that was closer have like $2 million? That's a great question. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like for like, it just goes along with the messaging component. Like we didn't get our messaging together, but we allowed people like Joe Manchin to dominate the news cycle instead of productive things that help our cause. Mm-hmm. And those are only like three out of, there's obviously state factors in all these elections and whatnot that'll happen in the midterms and whatnot. But I'm not even on, a, bring up on a broad <laughs> on a broad scale, if we fail, it'll be because we didn't do any of that shit. I I can't disagree inherently, and I think to 
CNN recently did a poll that found that a majority of Americans say Biden isn't paying attention to the nation's most important issues. And I <laughs> lean into your point. Before this article even came out, there was a series of tweets. I want to say it might have been from Nate Silver, but don't hold me to that. Whoa. Um, I mean, I follow him. He, Whoa. He has interesting things that come out that he I does. want to track. He does. Um, that highlighted more Americans associate the child tax credit, which I know people are still trying to understand what it is and how they get this money, but it's, it single-handedly cut child poverty in half. And if it was allowed to continue through the reconciliation bill, very well could have eliminated child poverty. Most Americans associated that with the Democratic Party and the Democrats in Congress over Joe Biden, even though he was the champion of that part of the policy that pushed it forward and brought it. Um, so I can't help but agree with you seeing these different headlines pop out and diving into numbers that um, more than a third of Americans call the economy the most pressing problem facing America or facing the country, um, with 72 percent of them saying that Biden hasn't been attentive to the right issue when it comes to economy. So but still give him a favorable view when it comes to coronavirus. So I, I think to that of messaging is a huge problem for Democrats. And as we prepare for the midterms, as all of these policies start to go into effect, there's such long games like the child um, care entitlement is an opt in system for states. It's a buildup. You won't see the true impact of that until the presidential election. That's just how it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have these amazing instances through the infrastructure bill to start building charging stations and all of these things. Again, things you won't see by 2022. So I, I struggle with and agree with you. If the electorate looks similar to Virginia, that means the argument's going to be around critical race theory. It's going to be around... So culture wars, yeah. It's going to be around vaccines. And I don't Probably. fully understand what the Democrats can say to change that group or to, to shift the paradigm. But also, we have this outlier that, know. fingers crossed, somehow the um, insurrection um, commission finishes just before the midterms. And maybe that has some damning evidence that just completely knocks the carpet from underneath the Republican party. That's a long shot. Depending, I'm not holding on to depending it. Depending on what you watch or see. I, True. Those polls kind of frustrate me because it's kind of like twofold, right? Like I get frustrated because our messaging fucking sucks. And then I get kind of annoyed because like, I, I don't actually expect it, but sometimes I just kind of wish that the American people would like pay attention for two seconds on what the president is doing. Um, because I can assure you that he is pretty attentive when you pay attention. Um, uh, uh, obviously, um, well, I mean, you can ask, but if you're not going to be happy with the answer you get from them, um, to pay attention. So the next best thing that, that Joe Biden and the Democrats can do to change how people view the administration and the party in general and all this stuff is they gotta, I, to me, they have to be ahead of what's going to happen. We already saw that in one year, Virginia, a reliably blue state, completely flipped around and said, no, we want Republicans now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And like, but that only happened in a year. And that means that in a year, a, there's no reason to think that a big change maybe in one direction or the other wouldn't happen again. So get ahead of that. Now, start thinking about it. Seriously, get the fucking message together. Pass these bills and get it together. I can't help but lean into your above the fold even uh, kind of as a wrap up. But I, I get it. I have a lot of progressive friends who want to see the fucking moon touch um, touch this country, essentially. Like <laughs> They want it all and are hoping to see it all. But they want it to burn. <laughs> To an extent, and then they want it to be built back up. Yes. And build back better, am I right? Um, I still don't like that slogan. I think that was a dumb choice, but I digress. Buffalo is a great example. And hell, um before 2020, 2018. 2018 is another great example. <clears throat> there was a call after the 2018 election, right after um Democrats solidified their majority in the house that own the fact that yes we need to start pulling in more progressive policies however in national campaigns and in certain areas we can't allow the message to be that progressive it's killing us in our suburban areas it's killing us um with moderates who are well liked by their constituents but because they're being tethered to all of these things that they have never said or been a part of they can't win. Fast forward to 2020, and you have a representative from Virginia on the call screaming, saying she almost lost her effing seat because they compared her to AOC and her constituents don't view AOC favorably. And I I bring all this up because Buffalo is a great example of that, right? Cool. During a primary, the more progressive candidate won. But in the end, when the people got to vote, they were not on that same space and place. Mm-hmm. Seeing AOC and the squad vote against the infrastructure bill, hearing them actively trying to yeah. hold up and do other things is showing that further frustration of, yes, you might have great policies, but that is not where our country is right now. And when it comes, and again, cancel me if you want, when it comes to getting a couple, like, Walking half a mile versus running the full marathon. I'm sorry, but I'm picking walking half the mile because that's still better than where I am right now. That that AOC thing in the squad voting against the infrastructure bill, like there's some people who have chalked it up to, and they might be right, but they've chalked it up to, oh, if they knew that they didn't have the votes, they would have voted for it. Still not acceptable. And I'm like, okay, but they didn't vote for it. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it still passed. That's lovely. But they didn't vote for it. And that's what it fucking looks like. And it's on them and they're going to have to suffer consequences. People want this, even if it's not everything, they want it. And it's things and like And they voted that. against one of the most popular bills ever. Literally. <laughs> like, w- like that is their political play that yep. I just think has probably going to backfire on them long-term. I doubt it'll backfire on them. Full transparency. I think they've solidified themselves and will get reelected, but well, maybe not on them in their districts. Yes. But maybe on the democratic socialist, who wanted to be Buffalo's mayor. And I think too, it's that all or nothing approach, right? Like it, what can now be said about that? Again, a policy that passed both the Senate and the house on a bipartisan basis, which is huge. Yeah, it's a big deal. It can now be said 
look, even when this progressive socialist policy was pushed through and shoved down your throats, they still want it more. And it's those types of pieces and things that allow that chip away and that broader message for the Republican Party, because I mean, AOC came out and said, uh, was it AOC or was it Pars- or Presley? One of the two came out and said, I I didn't feel comfortable voting for this because um, with bills like this, when there's a bunch of compromises, it's always the black and brown people who are left out of the mix. And it's those who get forgotten. And I couldn't, I didn't feel comfortable voting for a policy that I felt like was going to leave people out, which is inherently wrong about how this policy made it, Right. It's that. It's that struggle that I would credit to. And I I feel will continue to be the reason that the Democrats can't have a blue wave come a midterm or really see the ramifications that they need. Instead, the country needs to see the worst of the worst from the Republican Party to be like, all right, pump the brakes. We're going to vote for the other. Yeah. Yeah. Even though most of the country is actually more in the Democratic camp. More than likely. We have to do. Anyways, when we come back, we'll talk about tangents and, I don't know, cool stuff like that. (laughs) All right, Caleb, take us on a tangent. Okay, my tangent's kind of based off a news story today. Um, So something that I've been really interested in lately, and I actually think Terrell has been a little bit too, is just like how automakers like Ford, GMC, all of them are like kind of switching up their business models a little bit um, to deal with not only electrical vehicles, but kind of how uh, Americans, basically their buying behavior in, in these times. Um, like for instance, uh, they most of these uh, big companies in Detroit, uh, big three, as we like to call <laughs> them, um, most of them have uh, started slashing making sedans because Mm -hmm. people want more cargo space and whatnot, which is, as you recall, something that they kind of started to do right before um, the recession. Not that that's a stupid. That's what it is. Not that that that's a predictor of a recession happening. It's just their market research is saying that, Oh, Americans don't want sedans. They want an SUV so they can put more stuff in there. And I know Terrell that you think it's stupid that they do that. (laughs) I don't because a lot of SUVs get way better gas mileage now. Um, There's more electric options that'll be on the table in the coming years. And um, I think it's not, it's not just a trend that happens every once in a while. I think it's been a long time coming that people don't want to drive tiny cars anymore. But um, it says the two people who drive tiny cars. I have an SUV. It's a it's a crossover. Okay, I was gonna say SUVs more, a stretch. Way way more cargo space than a sedan could get me though. Uh, I feel like you and I could compete. Oh no no no! My Fusion has a lot more <laughs> space than people. I uh, no, people I don't disagree. Imagine. I don't disagree. The only difference can is you, you put have a it. fucking couch in it. I don't think so. Oh my god! <laughs> okay, <anyways>. in on <laughs> it depends on your vernacular there. My <laughs> my um. My interest is that Ford is releasing a new truck and a lot of people don't like trucks, but Ford really thinks that there's an untapped opportunity because they're building not just any kind of truck, a really small truck. And you're like, oh, what do you mean by that? Well, it's called the Ford Maverick, if you want to look it up. And it, it I mean, it's, it's pretty nice. It looks nice interior or whatnot, pretty simple, but it has a little flatbed in it and it gets 42 miles to the gallon. It's 
it's just a nice little, it's, it's a really big convenience factor. And Ford did a ton of market research on this. And basically the answer came out that, yeah, people want uh, uh, more cargo space and that's why they're buying SUVs. But even the SUVs aren't as convenient as like sometimes a flatbed can give you. Mm-hmm. Um, so like people who don't usually drive trucks or whatnot, this is kind of their opportunity to get into not just trucks, but something that is more convenient for them. And even even Hyundai, who I don't really care much for Hyundai, but they ha- they um, are kind of releasing a similar uh, car, like a tiny truck in quotes there um, uh, because of this. And even they cited that they have never done as much market research as they have before in America um, until it came to this tiny truck. Mm-hmm. And all of the research points to this is an untapped opportunity for us. And so... You know, like I think that you can even get the Ford Maverick, this tiny truck and hybrid too. I don't even know if there's a full gas version, to be honest. There might be though. Probably. I don't know. Probably. But um, I mean, I don't know, Terrell. It's just, it, it intrigues me that, that it's kind of moving in that direction. Like, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know what your personal preference is, but like if you could get like a pretty cheap car and it happened to be a little truck, would you do it? 42 miles to the gallon? Potentially. There you go. <laughs> Untapped opportunity. No, I just think it's interesting how the landscape of how we use our cars is changing, but also what powers them is too. And this is just another kind of trendy direction of where that is going. And I think that's fascinating. I also have different, like, there are a lot of things that go into when I purchase a car. I'm also oh, one of yeah. those weird people who I don't want to push to start. I don't like push to start cars. They drive oh, me crazy. You and my mom. Both they, hate push to start they drive cars. Drive me crazy. That's not changing. I know. Mine's still a key. Same, and that's one of the reasons I don't want a new car. Anytime if I ever soon. got, if I ever got a car older than mine, though, it'd be push to start, hundred percent. Older than? I mean, newer than well, my car. Yeah, because you don't have any other options anymore. Mm-hmm. They phased out keys in twenty eighteen. It's whatever. I'll get used to it if it happens. I mean, I've, my mom used or my mom's truck uh, was push start. Why do you hate push to start? I just you just love the feeling of putting the key in the hole, essentially turning it and hearing the end and go. Yeah, there's like well, yeah, better get used to it, Terrell, because the engine's not making noise anymore. I that part I care less about. (laughs) My engine barely makes noise. Um, It's not so much the frustration or like that need. What's where I'm looking for? It's almost like people who don't want to switch from manual to automatic, right? Like there's this. Feeling that I have Nostalgia. some control in driving mm. the vehicle. I have some space there. Too much computer for you? Is that yeah. what you're saying? And it's not, I mean, yes and no. Um, I mean, I would never get a Tesla for that one reason. I don't want a self-driving car. Like, what's the point of me driving at well, that point? But you don't have to use I know, that. but after you, <laughs> I like. I honestly, I don't, one of the changes that people are predicting that I don't like because I like to drive is the idea of self-driving cars and yes. automated cars and that no one will have a car one day soon like some people predicted that's happening in a decade yeah no i could see it in cities i just don't like the idea of not being able to drive somewhere myself yeah it's just a different form it's the same thing as like self-checkouts and uh i'm kind of okay with that but But it's it's just another space where i think 
automation is happening more aggressively than we're willing to give credit. And we are steps away from being the fat people who get hovered around like they were in Wally. Now, this probably doesn't apply to cars, Wally, right? But there's, oh, yes, I think it <laughs> But there's a really interesting kind of math model of self-checkout specifically. So a store has to find a balance between actual people at the register and self-checkouts mm-hmm. because if you're thinking, oh, we'll save money if we only have self-checkouts, that's actually wrong. There's like a very optimized point and you have to find it. So if you've ever seen a store implement a bunch of self-checkouts and then a month later decide to rip up them and put back in a human uh, worked cash register, it's because they were losing revenue and they hadn't reached their, they had gone over their optimized point, too many self-checkouts to the human. So anyways, Look at you in, using in, groceries, in grocery stores, you'll always, you're always going to see self-checkouts, but um, you'll still see humans up there a lot. Um, as well for the next probably while you just probably want to flex your, you just want to flex your mba it's, it's kind of interesting it is that's why you haven't seen full-on self-checkouts and no humans like fully automated yeah would have amazon's it. trying to change that i don't know if their tech is going to be any different uh depends on if they keep the amazon prime move that they had of Maybe. where you just walk in and yeah you're able to scan I mean. in and just grab groceries and scan out yeah, they're trying to change. They're trying to do that, and I'm if if that tech happens, I actually think it won't catch on for another couple decades at least. I'd agree. Anyways, take us on a tangent trail. No, 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 no. <laughs> I don't even know. I'm frustrated with everything in the world. All right, well that's uh, our show. Um, I hate you. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I. How do I word what I'm thinking in a clear and concise way that doesn't spark controversy? There is no such way of doing that. Are you afraid I'm, of the woke mob? No, I'm just over white people. No offense. Um, oh, kidding. Because they are co-opting this whole woke message, and people aren't realizing it, and it's really frustrating. The the ability for and i know we didn't dive into this when torrance is here and if he hears this we might dive into it later the ability for this group of people to garner enough of an issue try to take down a pretty large-scale comedian um and by pretty large-scale i mean very large-scale comedian (laughs) because there was a report that his latest special was transphobic But then when you push those people of, did you even listen to the special? They all say, no, I'm not going to waste my time listening to the special because it's transphobic is an inherent problem. Like you, you're cutting yourself off from making your own decisions, from understanding what's happening. Uh, I think you've already said something controversial. I know. Um, (laughs) Your goal has failed. (laughs) It just plays into this growing faction that is anytime I disagree with you or anytime I don't like it. And now I'm sounding like a Republican, Jesus. Um, I'm going to say that it's X. And if I get enough people to support me, no one's going to ask you if what you said is true or not. They're just going to take my side. And now there's this whole group that's challenging you, waiting for you to apologize. If you don't apologize, it's going to be mad. 
And now there's this constant resurfacing of things that I watched when I was a child that sure, 100% could have been problematic, probably was. But you know, at that point in time, the way that this country handled race was to make those jokes and make people really look in the mirror. It's the same reason I make some of the racial jokes that I do, because when I talk about race out outwardly, my white counterparts either shut off or they decide that they want to be social justice warriors. And that's even worse. But when I'm able to show my blackness in a way that I feel comfortable, soften it a tad bit for people who aren't completely palatable with it and then use it as an educational space, that makes a bigger difference. And two, my frustration is this group is so quick to identify small things, but the Telegraph posts this unnecessary hit piece on the vice president of the United States, essentially asking um, where she's been, why is the White House hiding her because they don't think she's a good politician? All of these things. Wow, that's an assumption. And you don't hear any controversy about it. You don't hear people being frustrated with the actual things they should be of never did we care about the vice president more than we did when it became a by a black or brown um person of color in that space who's a female. And now everybody and their mom has an opinion on we should know everything the vice president's doing. She should be the first person we hear from. Screw Joe Biden at this point. Like those should be the things that piss people off that they're arguing about. But instead we want to fight these stupid arguments over things that are just irrelevant in my personal fucking opinion. Um, <laughs> and then still allow for toxic things in those areas. We still allow for um, people to be attacked and we, we throw around the word race like there's no tomorrow now. Um, meanwhile, Aaron Rodgers is out here unvaccinated, has coronavirus, <laughs> potentially got hundreds of other players sick. But God forbid the media gives him shit because he's their golden boy. Kyrie Irving, though, piece of trash. Everyone wants to hit on him. Like It's all of these spaces that I'm starting to get very frustrated and see a lot of inequities when it comes to what it means to be woke. And that's my danger. Well, that's my uh, an earlier point you made is uh, you're starting to sound Republican. Yes. And I think people who view themselves as woke probably think you're a Republican. 100%. Until I started saying... A inequ- dino. A Democrat in name only. Until I started saying inequ- inequities and they're like, wait, a conservative knows what that word means? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I... My response to that actually is a podcast recommendation, and it actually happens to be Pod Save America. And you might be like, "Why? That's a super liberal podcast about talk about politics." Well, um, one of the hosts on it, John Favreau, actually started a little series within Pod Save America, mm-hmm. so you have to go to Pod Save America to find it called Offline, and it's a conversation about how we're becoming angrier. Uh, everything basically you described. Um, we're less willing to interact with people. Everyone's upset, mm-hmm. mental health issues, all of it. And he's like three weeks into it now. And it's actually kind of like, it's almost kind of refreshing to hear because it's like all the things I've noticed that I've worried about in terms of image and stuff really spawns from being on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to care way more than I do now, but even then I'm still like, 
I know if I went out and said this opinion, I might have blowback and I don't, I'm kind of don't want to do that. But, um, one of the guests he had on was Monica Lewinsky hmm. and Monica Lewinsky is described as like the first person to fall prey to this like mob behavior through the internet. And it's just a very fascinating conversation just about the anger and the wokeness and all of this stuff um, that you are basically hitting on right now. And so for all our listeners, go check it out. Um, the episodes are delineated from the regular Pod Save America episodes uh, with the word offline in the front. Um, it's very fascinating. Hmm. Well, I believe that's our show. I'm Caleb. And I'm Terrell. And we're Dangerously Likely to see you next week. Thank you.